Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Well, hello again. It's Brendan here, and I'm here with Mark. I've recovered from my man flu, Mark. Um, almost completely got a bit of a residual cough, which hopefully you won't hear today. But um, I'm back and I'm fine and I'm ready to go, Mark. And we've got some fantastic news stories this week. And we've also got a competition to start for listeners to email into us. It's all happening, Mark. What have you been up to this week? <laughs> You just dropped off oh. the. Yeah, I just dropped off the, uh, and it's it's a you, the excitement that you've generated at the beginning of the, it's exhausting, Brenda. Because I think I don't know how it's happened over the electronic media, but I've come down with your dose of the man flu. I'm not looking forward to the next few days. I think I'm just. Oh no! Well, hopefully you'll get more sympathy than I got at home, Mark. That's all I all I wish for you and a speedy recovery for you, Mark. But. We're going to shot soldier on like we did last week, aren't we? And we're going to get stuck into some news. But I think you had a couple of things to talk about as far as what you've been up to in the last few days. I did. I was going to to um, just quickly talk about. Uh, uh, I had a good experience on Monday. I was at the um, the my board meeting, my monthly board meeting with uh, the New South Wales Veterinary Practitioners Board, and um, after the part of the meeting, I was in on Monday. I I had a, a, um, a meeting with uh, Paula Parker and Deb Neutzer of the ABA. Um, the uh, um, it was a bit of strategising about um, uh, the South Australian Board uh, has some issues with the Australian Veterinary Boards Council, and uh, in order to um, you know it's a, a good thing to have a bit of a discussion about making sure that we solve South Australia's problems to keep them um, a constructive part of the board. But I, it was a real pleasure to, um, first of all, Deb Noitz is someone I've known for a long, long time and uh, and um, she's become uh, uh, quite the proficient um, a lobbyer of gov- government. She uh, has uh, cultivated an, a number of networks and um, is doing such outstanding work for the ABA. And um, it's one of the first times I've had a chance to speak to Paula. I've seen her on, she's done an awesome job of um, uh, on the project a couple of times and um, she's really uh, taken uh the previous president, our good friend Roberts, um, lead in in um, making uh, the AVA prominent in the the uh, mainstream media, and uh, and I just um, uh, it was just a pleasure to talk to um, uh, these fine women and uh, um, and get the benefit of their wisdom and experience in these topics. And just it was a good day, Brendan. A good time to talk to these successful people. Good to have a good day, Mark. Yes, I was involved with a teleconference with Paula not that long ago about something exciting in the exotic pet world that 
we hopefully will be able to announce over the next few months, and that's regarding the provision of insurance for unusual pets or exotic pets in Australia. As you know, in Australia, and I, I think in most of the world, um, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to have your pets insured if they're not of the standard type of pet, like a dog or a cat or a horse or, um, I think, farm animals. And, uh, yeah, there's a pretty good chance that we'll be able to, in the medium term, uh, get some insurance sorted out for unusual pets. So clients that have a snake or a ferret or a guinea pig or a rabbit will be able to have them insured. We hope. It's still fairly early days, but one of the large insurance companies are quite interested in in becoming involved with it. And we had a teleconference regarding that, I think, last week, the week before last, actually, um, before I had my man flu mark. So, yeah, that's my good news. Um, I think the other good news is we decided for all our listeners to run a competition. And the competition, Mark, is to win a a doorstop, uh, um, which is called A Guide to Health and Disease in Reptiles and Amphibian, which is a, a, a book primarily aimed at uh, lay persons, um, but also we are finding a lot of vet clinics are having this book on the shelf, not only to sell to clients, um, but also to use in their, in their, um, in their clinic. And it is one that I happen to co-author. So for whoever wins the competition, and we'll talk about the competition in a sec, they will receive a free copy of this book shipped to anywhere in the world, Mark. I'm going to pay the postage. It doesn't matter wherever in the world it ends up. I will ship it there, whoever the winner is, wherever the winner is. Um, and what is the competition, Mark? Have you decided what we're going to do for the competition? Well, I've been so excited by the uh, the the communications we've received and the discussions we've had, the emails, the, the few of them that we've had, that I thought it would be great if we could get some more. And what I'm particularly interested in um, are um, short, funny stories concerning exotic pet clients. I reckon the funniest story that uh, that involves a, um, a, a an exotic or avian uh, pet client um, uh, we will read a few of them out on our podcast and the one that generates the most guffaws um, they're going to be the beneficiary of uh, your wonderful book and I feel that I'm in a special position because this is one of the publications that I have not contributed to in a material way so I can offer an independent opinion um, I, while it's a, a book that's definitely aimed at the uh, the um, general public um, I, it's a, a book that we have on the shelf and I know a number of the students and uh, um, uh, inexperienced vets inexperienced with reptiles love to grab it because it um, it does an excellent job of uh, explaining those uh, disease concepts and husbandry concepts for uh, our reptiles in a in a, um, a very digestible fashion so it's an excellent prize and hopefully having an excellent prize will lead to some excellent funny stories Brendan I'm looking forward to a laugh, Mark, as you know I always am. So to enter the competition, just send an email with an interesting or funny story of 
your experiences as a vet or a veterinary nurse technician and just send it to vetgurus at gmail.com as a place to um, send it to and Mark and I will look at them and we promise to read them all and we promise to laugh at all of them um, regardless of whether they're funny or not we will laugh at them so we will do that for you because we like our listeners and a big shout out this week I know I like to say hello to somebody in a far-flung area who is a listener and we have two subscribers Mark in the Cook Islands so hello to our two listeners in the Cook Islands and um, keep listening so let's get on to some news Mark I think we need to talk about very long-lived pets, and I'm trying to think where this one is from. Well, it's from the Mother Nature Network again, and it's a story about Gianna Smith, who was hoping for a puppy when she was 10 years of age, and guess what? Her father gave her a tortoise, and she still have has this tortoise. She's had the tortoise for 56 years, and uh, she talks a little bit about how she used to take the tortoise to school. She took it off to college and kept it in a dorm room when she was in college, and he gets strawberries and kiwis for Christmas morning every Christmas for the last 56 years the reason why i like this story and then it has a little bit of a um a little bit of a um um, comment on uh it's a gopher tortoise uh and it does mention that they were found very commonly in the united states but now the numbers have dropped in recent years and they're becoming on the edge of potentially becoming um very um let's see how many they had there was about eight 800,000 gopher tortoises. I thought there wasn't that many left. Oh, or maybe they have bounced back a little bit, but they were worried about them being potentially threatened at one stage, I think. Um, yeah, so the reason I, put, I had this one on there, Mark, as a, as a potentially news item is uh, we do mention in our podcast a few times about the longevity of our pets, and I'm sure that I have seen several Australian long net turtles in practice and I think I saw one last week that is well over about 50 years of age and I have had a couple over the years that have been passed on from grandfathers and grandmothers to their grandchildren over over the years so I think people need to realize when they are potentially getting these long-lived pets especially the reptiles that they think very carefully about what's going to happen to that turtle or tortoise um, in the future. Um, one of the other species that I've always been fascinated with, and we do see the occasional one as a pet, um, mainly see them at wildlife parks um, as far as consulting goes, is saltwater crocodiles, Mark. I don't know whether you've seen many of them in your practice or we have any clients who have them as pets, uh, but one of the thoughts is that saltwater crocodiles can potentially live for well over 100 years and potentially up to 200 plus years of age. Um, what is the longest lived patient you've had in your practice, Mark? Oh, you just started me thinking about that right then. And um, and I think while we have a couple of long-lived turtles, um, uh, I think the one that we officially had, uh, you know, dates that we um, – uh, we even had some photographs uh, which confirmed the story. Um, was a girl, a seventy-six-year-old galah, um, and uh, 
and um, and that's probably it. we normally expect um, galahs to get to the you know those cockatoo all the cockatoo families are long lived, and galahs we expect to sort of get to fifty maybe sixty years. They probably are thirty to fifty in the wild as their normal lifespan. And um, but no, this one was seventy six years old, and we had a traceable pathway through the family, as you said, from grandparents to uh, to to from from grandparents to parents to to uh, the current generation, three generations, and um, and yeah, they they these long-lived animals generate an awful lot of um, sentimental value as well as direct. Uh, you know, they're a connection for many people to their their parents and grandparents, and um, so they love them for the pets that they are, but they love them that little bit more for the connection they provide. Yes, yes, and it's. Um, I think people just don't realise that. Um, when they purchase some of these pets, how potentially long they will live if they're looked after correctly. And I think we need to make sure that they do know that when they bring it in for that first health check, we say, do you realise you're going to be looking after this reptile for the next six years? Have you spoken to your grandchildren about what they're going to do with it? Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Okay, so news story number two is... You, Mark, what are you going to talk about? Um, it's another mother nature network story. Um, and the story in particular leads me on to a couple of other stories. So um, it uh, it specifically asks the question um, about how savage, how dangerous newts are. Now, newts are, um, you know, amphibians, close relatives of the frogs and toads. Uh, they have a lizard-like body structure and they're uh, inhabitants in Inhabitants of moist forests usually, um, but they the one of the characteristics they share with the toads is that they very often have a, um, a significant uh, toxin in their skin, and um, the garter snake, a, a particular predator of newts, has, um, has evolved to deal with the you know to have a significant tolerance to the toxin that the uh, the um, Newt producers, but uh, can they really kill a human? Well, there was uh, recently, um, uh, well, 1979, a 29-year-old man who um, had imbibed a considerable, considerable amount of alcohol, uh, whiskey, um, who then on a dare swallowed a uh, uh, one of the newts and subsequently um, died as a result of the, uh, the toxin in the newt's skin. Um, so... Uh, the key thing here is uh, that I would seriously suggest that um, uh, while you can um, probably handle them, probably best to put gloves on if you're going to play with a newt, definitely don't give them a kiss and definitely don't, uh, you know, have too much drink and follow some sort of dare. Interestingly enough, Brendan, the the uh, while this is a story about uh, uh, newts, which are predominantly animals that occur in... Um, in uh, North America, um, there and some species in Europe, um, there is uh, in your neck of the woods uh, now one of our most recent feral animals here in Australia is the smooth skin newt, which has, as I understand it, a number of small populations that are uh, actually breeding um, in the waterways around Melbourne. Um, and they haven't established significant numbers as far as I know. They're probably um, uh, escapees from 
um, aquarium collectors um, and they've just uh, maybe let a few too many go um, but I understand that um, that these newts are just in your neck of the woods Brendan uh, in the wild and these ones in particular much smaller generally as adults maybe only six or seven centimeters but they have poisonous skin as well so it's very important that you heed my instruction not to kiss them when you find them, Brendan. Uh, and don't newt and drink, or don't newt and drive is is the um, is the key to it, isn't it, Mark? Yes. Um, no, I haven't heard about that um, particular species in in my region, so it's something I have to keep a lookout for, Mark, and I'll make sure I'm wearing gloves every time I go outside um, for the next few weeks um, to make sure I don't come in contact with it. The next news story is dechlorine of cats. So we're back on to dogs and cats. And our main topic this week is about our little doggy friends um, that you may have gathered from the title. And this is a new story from the medicalnewstoday.com website that was published last year in May last year. And it talks about dechlorine surgery um, being illegal in many countries but is still a surprisingly common practice in some countries. And it's based on an article that was published in the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery stating that dechlorine increases the risks of long-term or persistent pain manifesting as unwanted behaviour such as inappropriate elimination and aggression and biting. And the headline is dechlorine linked to aggression and other abnormal behaviours in cats. And for the study, they looked at 170... I'm going to have to cough in a sec, so I'm just going to put myself on mute for a sec, Mark, so you can... um, you can just talk about whether or not you've seen any declawed cats for thirty seconds, and I'll just pop myself I feel on mute I was, while I cough. It was. A, it is a very interesting topic, and it's one that fascinates. Declawing fascinates me because of the way that um, it is such a culturally based um, surgical procedure that there is the the circumstance in some countries um, where it's completely accepted to protect the furniture by amputating P3 from the uh, particularly the four uh, legs, um, all of them, all of the third phalanges. And in other countries, um, it's it's just um, oddly, bizarrely thought of. There's something, you know, if you own a cat, you're going to accept that some parts of the house may get scratched and uh, and it's not a reasonable thing to do to cut those digits off to prevent a little bit of furniture scratching. So, yes, I'm yep. back. I'm back. Yeah. Um, yeah, this study, as I was about to um, go into a coffin fit there, was um, 137 non de cats and 137 de cats, of which 33 were declawed on all four feet, and they examined all the cats for physical um, examination and neurological examination for signs of pain and other other signs of stress and reviewed the medical history and they found that inappropriate toileting, biting, aggression and over-grooming occurred significantly more often in the declawed cats than the non-declawed cats. And interestingly enough, a declawed cat was also 
almost three times more likely to be diagnosed with back pain than a non-declawed cat. And their um, assumption there was that it may have been potentially due to the shortening of the declawed limb and altered gait and or chronic pain at the site of the surgery, causing compensatory weight shifts to the pelvic um, limbs. And they, the article goes on to uh, mention the surgical guidelines for performing dechlorine in the United States as recommended by the diplomats of the American College of Veterinary Surgeons is to remove the entire third phalanx, as you mentioned um, um, when I was off coughing, which is the most distal bone of the toe. But despite this, P3 fragments were found in 63% of the declawed cats reflecting poor or inappropriate surgical techniques. So I think that's the key with this particular article and that unfortunately a fair number of them weren't declawed correctly, whether or not you agree with dechlorine, uh, and has resulted in behavioural changes presumably related to to pain long-term Um yeah, um, I, I mean, my personal view is that, yeah, we shouldn't need to declaw these animals and um, I, that's the reason why it is, it is illegal in a fair number of countries. Have you used, it reminds me of um, those particular, what do they call them, those little caps you can put over um, cats' claws to try and stop them scratching furniture? Do you are, know that they, 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 they soft, have some soft names? And I know that. I know the name um, very well because uh, about once every three weeks, Kate and I catch up our two cats and uh, they have um, them uh, a little bit of tissue cement and um, variously sized uh, claw covers um, and uh, and we place those uh, those soft paws on um, Laura and uh, Pink, our two cats, Um and uh, and and we, that's the the technique we use to um, uh, protect the relatively expensive furniture that Kate has a, a habit of um, of acquiring. Um, and so uh, I, I do have personal experience with it. I I would say one of the interesting things about the soft pores that uh, we've noticed is that um, the tissue cement uh, would seem to permeate through the nail the porous nail and and obviously the the plastic cover um the soft plastic cover eventually is shed with each of the shed cycles of the nail the the way that cats pull their nails off but um i have seen an increase in those sorts of nails where the sheds are incomplete and the nail starts to roll around past um, it's normal 90 degree sort of angle and get around to, you know, particularly that dew claw will get around to uh, 180 or 270 degrees and approach the, um, the point where it starts to put pressure on the nail base once again and dig into the tissue. And that's probably the one thing I would advise people. I have great, I'm a great fan of the soft paws in our house, but we've just got to make sure that the, uh, the nails don't, uh, don't fail to shed. Um, so it does take a little bit of monitoring, Brendan. Yes. No, I. thanks for reminding me of the name of them, and it's good that you have use with them. So that can be a product review for the week. Um, it's the soft claws. Uh, yes, I've occasionally recommended it to clients, but I, I must admit I have no personal experience with the use of that particular product. So, yeah, so that's the article uh, about dechlorine linked to aggression and other ab- abnormal behaviours in 
cat's mark. And the final paragraph goes on to say, the result of this research reinforces my opinion that declawed cats with unwanted behaviours may not be bad cats. They may simply need pain management, says the lead author of the paper, Nicole Martell-Moran, a veterinary practitioner in a cat-only clinic in Houston, Texas. So there we go. We'll have the link to that particular article, as we will to all of the articles for our news items on our website at vetgurus.com. Our last news item is one for you, Mark, isn't it? And you're getting very anxious about very something. I'm very anxious. I'm, I uh, love these sorts of news articles which point to, you know, another positive benefit of pet ownership, um, you know, the lowered heart rate, the uh, increased life expectancy, the lower incidence of heart disease, the improved psychological health that um, many studies show that pets produce. So when I find an article um, on the um, Medical News Today curated network um, that, that um, suggests that there may be some negative uh consequences of uh, keeping pets i do get a little bit anxious and this article actually you know makes a um a, a decent amount of sense and also um uh, feeds back into a couple of the the cases that i've had recently and i sort of can understand where the authors are coming from so the basic um the basic uh i don't know the basic theme of the argument is that um that in human care, um, when the, a person um, who is looking after, uh, who, who someone is caring for a seriously ill relative or person, it's well recognised that's a particularly stressful endeavour that uh, increases anxiety and depression in the caregiver. Um, but uh, this study looks at the uh, likelihood that the same stress anxiety and depression could occur in those caregivers of terminally ill pets. Um, and uh, uh, this is a, this type of stress has a medical name. It's referred to as a caregiver burden. Um, and it's well recognised that, um, you know, the consequences of this, this work, the social isolation, the disconnection, uh, the, the, um, uh, Worry and anxiety and depression all lead to a poorer overall quality of life for the the uh, caregiver. So, um, does this occur in um, in people who are caring for terminally ill um, animals? Uh, and so, there was a study done um, by. Dr. Mary Beth Spitznagel, and uh, she was collaborating with colleagues from Kent State University in Ohio to uh, examine the link. Between, cat, uh, between caregiver burden amongst pet owners um, and their risk of um, uh, the risk of anxiety and depression in those caregivers. Um, and the results of their study were reported in the veterinary record. Um, they looked at a relative, uh, pleasingly, for those of us who love evidence, they looked at a relatively large sample space um, and their conclusions were that um, the owners of dogs and cats that were chronically or terminally ill were probably pretty much as expected exposed to high levels of stress and exhibited symptoms of anxiety um, and depression. And these, uh, these pet owners were uh, reported having a much lower quality of life. So uh, I think it is a genuine 
thing, this um, uh, uh, pet caregiver burden. Um, and I, it's a, from a personal level, I know a couple of cases lately where we've been fortunate to diagnose in much-loved pets um, terminal illnesses, uh, cancers that are probably going to take uh, four to six months to to reach um, the quality of life inflection point where a uh, final decision would have to be made. And um, and I can recognise in those clients a, a, a change in their quality of life, the the attitudes they have to their pets, and um, and uh, and the constant cloud of worry about uh, loss and grief that they suffer. So I, I I can genuinely see that this is an issue, um, and uh, and I don't know that um, you know identifying it doesn't lead to an immediate uh, cause or uh, to an immediate solution. But I think it's a great thing that uh, that. Um, that these uh, researchers are starting to look at some of the potentially negative things that could happen uh, with um, pet ownership so that we can manage those as well or maximise the benefit for people to have animals in their families. Yes, and I must admit I forget or I'm not watching my clients a lot of the time when I should be saying to myself, and to the client, are you okay when they're looking after that um, chronically ill animal or that terminally ill animal? And um, I'd like to think I, 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 I am observant about that most of the time, but there, there will be times when I forget um, and just concentrate on the animal. And I should be stepping back and looking at the person and if they're looking a bit distressed or worn out, um, looking after their terminally ill pa- patient, um, family member, they... Um, we can offer them support, even if it's just saying, are you okay, um, to them, and then potentially pushing them on or not pushing them on, but suggesting to them that maybe they have a chat to somebody else in their family or their or their own GP um, if it looks like they're struggling with things. Yeah, so I think it's a pretty important article, that one, Mark, and it just makes us um, realise how important these pets are to us, um, which leads in really nicely, I think, to our main topic of the week, Mark, and that's providing. And we could talk about, I think, with the, 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 what did we have the topic as today? The, the podcast topic, Dog Days. So the making the vet visit smooth was what we want to have a little chat about. And what Mark and I thought we would talk about is how we make the visit a pleasant one for, we're going to stick with dogs, but most of this will apply to all the uh, all the pets that's seen in your vet clinic. How do we make the visit as pleasant as we want for that particular animal? And we're not talking about just keeping the animal alive when we're anaesthetising it and performing surgery on it. What sort of things we can do before the visit, during the visit and after the visit for the animal and their owner as well, Mark. So I might kick it off with um, booking the patient in or booking the animal in and we try to make sure that they get as much information up front um, so the day when they're dropping off Fido, it's not as stressful as it would be if they're standing up at reception, dropping off Fido, panicking about leaving Fido with us for the day and they're having to go through reams of paperwork. So we like to give them estimates up front when when we can and walk them through the procedure or one of my nurses will um, walk them through the procedure um, during the visit 
pre-visit uh, before the surgical day and we'll go through as much of their questions then and there to make things a little bit less overwhelming from the time of when they walk into the clinic to drop off their animals. So that's probably point number one. And I know most clinics probably do this uh, regardless, but I, I don't think we can underestimate how important it is to not overwhelm them with lots of lots of paperwork and things to sign and and information when they're dropping their pet off because all they're worried about is is leaving Fido for the day with us um what was um your first little tip mark for um admit admitting these well, patients I was going to day? reiterate what you said um but I was just going to emphasize that it's not my strong point I think that um that uh, you, the organisation, I suppose, is the key word here. And um, if you are organised, then that lessens that um, that waiting time in the waiting room. In the, and there's two things I think happen at that uh, at that sort of point. Um, there's always the worry that we have, you know, in the period of time that we're going to have admissions, we have multiple animals come in. They may not always be, you know. Uh, the same species um they may not always be um aggressive but there's no doubt that um the the uh presence of other animals will raise the level of anxiety in someone's dog and and that adds to um adds to the stress in general and there is a bit of a um a significant connection i find between um the level of stress in a dog and the level of stress in their caring owner um, and so if we can break that um, snowball effect where they're each affecting each other um, to drive up those levels of anxiety I think um, that makes a big difference and so being organized making it very time efficient when the animal's being organized uh, admitted I think that makes a huge difference and I was going to quickly mention one of the things that we'll often do before you we've had talks on this podcast before about uh, our use of um, of trazodone and um, and we've we've increasingly found that those dogs that we find might be a little bit um, likely to be tense on admission likely to be anxious that if we organize medication for them even before they come in so that can be given in the morning before they even leave home that dramatically changes the trajectory of their anxiety through the day so i pat you on the back brendan because i know you're a much much more organized man than i am and um and i think that organization feeds into that admission procedure and uh and and um and that takes away a significant amount of the worry for those poor dogs that are being admitted for a day procedure and, and I think the other factor with that is then it makes that dropping off time period much shorter as well if we've tried to pre, pre-do a lot of that. So when the client's bringing that animal in, they, they, they still are asked the, the usual questions. We weigh the animal again, or my nurses do, and then uh, they, the client signs the consent form for leaving the animal for the day and, and they briefly go through the surgical procedure again and the estimate. And... Uh, I often encourage them, not all the time, to bring in a little toy or maybe a little bit of food for the animal. We certainly do that for the small mammals, but if we stick with dogs, I usually don't say bring in any food for for for, for Fido. But I do think it's a good idea if they want to bring in their favourite little cuddly toy for their, their dog or the cat that has been dropped off. Uh, they... 
it's not rare to find that animal um, cuddling up to its little favourite toys with its little smells um, on there in, in the cage once it's been admitted into the cage. The only difficulty there is you've got to be careful that you know what toy or, or, or articles being left with the animal or a blanket is another classic one that ends up getting lost in the system and, and washed with all the other um, blankets and um, sheets and that from from the um, other, other cages. And the last thing I want to then do is to send that little animal home and their little favourite toy or blanket is is no longer and nobody can find it and it's quite distressing for everybody not just the pet as well yeah do you um have any policy as far as uh, clients potentially bringing in any any items of 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 um a little cuddle toy toy or something well unsurprisingly like that, we're we're probably pretty much on the same page brendan where i i uh i'm actively encourage um clients of or you know owners of all our pets but um but particularly the the dogs that we see to um bring in a towel or a toy or something that the dog's familiar with um like you we occasionally have breakdowns in our system for recording what they've come in with we try to photograph the toys that they're with we try to make notes about the towels or blankets that go in with them but once in a while we stuff up badly and we have to um, chase the the uh, piece of um, material or toy um, to make sure we get it back to them. But I think the benefit of um, something that's familiar in the cage, as you said, we regularly see them um, snuggle up to that, curl up around it, and uh, and those familiar smells are very reassuring, particularly for our dogs. And um, and the food thing, we we've only really started doing this recently, but. There's nothing like the uh, it, particularly in the recovery period. Not so much before we do a procedure, but once they're in recovery, um, warm, familiar food um, certainly uh, seems to be something that triggers uh, a more speedy recovery and facilitates uh, the animal's brightness and um, and happiness when it goes home. So uh, we do encourage people to bring in um it is amazing at what people feed their dogs um when you ask them to bring some stuff in but um but yeah it is a it definitely makes you know a little piece of chicken that they're they're familiar with the taste with makes a world of difference during recovery i think that's a great point in that you probably learn a lot about what they do or don't feed their pet when they're dropping off that item of food or items of food. They might bring in a three-course meal for for little tricky woo um, to be fed after the recovery. And I must admit, we don't do that as a as a routine, encourage the dog and cat owners to drop off some of their um, favourite food. And it's something that I think we should do more often. So yeah, um, I think I'll be going back tomorrow and encouraging clients to do that. I suppose the only downside is the, the logistics of that as well. Um, if you have a fair, a busy practice or you have a fair number of animals in for the day that you've got to account for all these different little parcels of food, Mark. Um, although the other, the flip side of that is if you've forgot to bring your lunch, you never know, you might exactly. have a good little meal there um, at lunchtime. Yeah. So our next um, comment or, or item on the um, trying to make the vet visit smooth for, um, for the for the animal is uh, the assessment and the pre-med and the anaesthesia and surgical period, um, which I think we'll just jump over fairly quickly, 
ideally if things are running smoothly when that animal is admitted that dog is admitted in in my clinic it comes out the back the vet has another little check of it and has a listen to its heart etc does a quick examination and then the animal will be pre-medded as it's um, placed into its its um, enclosure at the back of the clinic there so it's got some happy drugs on board pretty early on and uh, it's going to be a pretty chilled out um, doggy or catty um, until it's anaesthetized. So that's the ideal. It, it certainly doesn't work that way in um, some on some days when everything goes wrong and things are too busy and animals uh, are for, forgotten as far as being pre-medicated very early on. But I do like to try and have them pre-medded um, virtually the, the minute they come in, literally before they're placed in the cage out the back. Um, and then uh, let's talk about recovery, Mark. Um, what's your recovery process for them once they've had the surgery or their anesthesia or sedation what do you do to try and um, lessen any sort of stressful response with the with the animal and enhance the recovery two things that we find uh, really really uh, well uh, three things i suppose that we find really um, helpful in the recovery period the first one is that we're fastidious with um, them maintaining Body temperature. Um, we all our surgical cases have intravenous fluids, and so they're well hydrated. Um, and uh, we just find that if we, um, in our case, use the the generic bear hugger. I know you've got the uh, the the um, the uh, more modern modern version hot dog. They got hot, hot dog. So hot you dog, use your hot yeah. dog to make sure you've got hot dogs, and um, they. Uh, the, the, I think that maintaining the the, uh, the the thermal neutrality of the dog, making sure that they're nice and warm and they have good blood flow, um, that's a comforting thing. I think that um, just attention to environment, um, making sure that the recovery dogs are not exposed to the busiest part of the practice, that there's not banging and, you know, the stainless steel sinks we have, someone dropping an instrument in them, it's a distressing noise for me. And so when you're in that slightly dysphoric state in recovery, it can be really uh, uh, distressing to have that. And obviously um, uh, threatening animals of other species, uh, trying to decrease lines of sight and make sure that um, the animals feel secure and maybe a little bit shaded from the bright lights of the clinic. And just um, our, uh, I have to pat our nursing staff on the back because they seem to have a, a great empathy for the time to sit down by an animal and um, and gently pat it. And I think that that physical contact and uh, reassurance during the recovery period is, uh, as well as all the um, appropriate analgesia, um, is a, a, um, a wonderfully reassuring and comforting thing for them. Yeah, I think you do some of the yes. same sorts well, of things, Brendan. Yes, I think you've covered some of the comments I was going to make as far as the heat loss, uh, the recovery period, again, having their little favourite toy in there, making sure we've got little heat pads or heat discs or even wheat sacks or something to to um, um, to lie on if they want to, to try and keep them warm. And then we get to that and, and keeping things nice and quiet and not having a party out the back um, near, the, near the recovery cages. Um, not that we do that very often at all in my clinic. Um, and then the discharge period, Mark, I think is the final thing we were going to talk about, and that is getting that animal out the door. And I think the, the aspects here are more to... Um, 
more to uh, the client than than the patient. It's 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 making things look good for the clinic and to show that we care um, for the animals that were in our care during the day. And that is doing a couple of simple things: making sure they have a discharge appointment, whether it is with the vet or or with the nurse or the technician, and booking in a post-operative check at the time of discharge or even when they drop off the animal um, to have that post-operative check booked in. We factor that into our estimates for for routine surgeries or even the non-routine surgeries that that post-operative consultation is covered in the cost of the surgery there. So when they come in for that post-operative visit, it is not charged out separately in the majority of cases, not all of them. And I think that works out quite well in that they come for that post-operative check and you say, no, it's all covered um, in in the previous surgical bill. They um, feel good about that. And all the dogs and all the cats that we send home um, go home with a bandana on them. And we I buy various bandanas in bulk from um, websites like eBay and Etsy and um, those types of um, websites where you can buy 50 or 100 bandanas for um, a relatively um, minimal cost of only a dollar or so for each bandana and um, all of these animals go home or go walking out the door um, with a bandana around their neck, which I think the clients appreciate. And I always have a bit of a laugh with some of the animals that have major surgery and then they come back in six months later and they're wearing the same bandana again. Again, they're so proud that they had their bandana when they went home that the client has, has um, put it back on their little pet to bring it back for the revisit. Do you well, have I'm that inspired, happen in Mac? Um, by your your story, Brenda, because I know that um, uh, Kate and Mel, who do the grooming for us, they um, are always put a bandana on the dogs once they've been groomed so they can go home. Uh, but we haven't routinely done that to our surgical cases, and I think it's a an excellent little selling point. And, but I am going to adapt one other thing that, um, that Kate and Mel do to uh, what we've, you know, I've, I've been rather, I feel like I've uh, uh, lived in a cave because for, we've uh, been a great uh, uh, promoter of the um, various forms of uh, uh, pheromones, the appeasing pheromones, but I never realised that Adaptal comes in a spray bottle much like Feliway, and it's only been in the last few weeks that we've been um, spraying the groomed dog's uh, bandana with a fairly liberal dose of the Adaptal spray, and um, and I think that's something I'm going to uh, to adapt to uh, to adapt to include in our including <laughs> our, um, our routine surgical discharges. I think that um, that um, that would make a big difference to how comfortable the animals are when they go home and how uh, it may relieve some of their anxieties, particularly when we make sure we've got um, appropriate pain relief on board for those animals that go home. Yes. Well, that's something I need to do also, Mark, because we... Don't routinely use the Adaptal or the or the Feely way uh, at, um, for these animals and using it in their little carry cages. So yeah, it's something I need to do. So we we've 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 all learned something, haven't we, um, today from our little discussion? Um, so yeah, ho- hopefully that. Uh, making the vet visit smooth main topic is something um, for everyone and we can all get 
something out of it and we can think of what we can do to make that visit for our our dogs and cats and even our unusual pets and I think what we'll do we had a discussion off air before this uh, the podcast uh, recording started uh, we will probably do a similar sort of topic at some stage about the unusual pets and and we'll contrast uh, the way we admit the unusual pets and look after them pre and during and post our visits as well, Mark, because I think there's a few important differences with dealing with the unusual pets as compared with the um, the dogs and the cats. Um, so I think with that, I have a feeling our outro man is going to jump in very soon and kick us off here. So don't forget to enter our competition, vetgurus at gmail.com and send us a funny story. And we look forward to hearing from you soon. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.